Well, good morning, friends. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open there in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be exclusively basing ourselves in that passage this morning. We're not going to be flicking around at all. I pray that at the end of our time together, you'll see that there's more than enough challenge in these words for us today. But I want to start this morning with a bit of a confession. I know that some of you are going to think less of me as a result, but I've got to be honest with you. I really like reality TV. Not that now, not, not the trashy stuff. I, I like shows that require you to have a bit more talent than just having someone fall in love with you. You know, shows like Survivor, SAS Australia, My Kitchen Rules. And I think one of the reasons why I really like reality TV is that you get a chance to see the real person, to see people as they really are. As time goes on, the, the masks come off and you begin to see the real person emerge. You see them grow and develop as they confront their fears and come to see who they really are. And if you've ever watched reality TV like me, you'll know that there's a phrase that's often used to describe this process, the journey. People go on a journey, to a journey to discover themselves, to discover their strengths and weaknesses, even to see bits about themselves that they never really understood before. And you know what? That, that phrase, the journey, is actually a really good description of the Christian life, isn't it? Jesus described it in a very similar way, walking the narrow road. And sometimes the journey as a believer in the Lord Jesus can be exhilarating, can't it? God's word is coming alive to you. You, or you can't do anything but pray. You're serving everywhere and people seem to be coming to faith everywhere. You feel like some kind of you know, spirit-filled Superman or Wonder Woman. It's, it's amazing and it's brilliant. But then there are other times when the journey feels like it's all uphill, doesn't it? Where that, that, that vision of the future that Maxter shared with us seems a little bit dim. You feel weak and weary and windswept. It's all too hard. All you can manage is one step at a time, and even then you're not convinced that you're not going around in circles. Last week, as we looked at the start of chapter 2, we saw that our, our model, our, our inspiration for the journey is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who we saw didn't look to his own interests, but who humbly submitted himself for the benefit of others. And here in our passage today, in the following verses, Paul gives us four reasons, four reasons that we can remain confident on the journey, even when it feels like it's all uphill. Four reasons we can have joy as we follow the Lord Jesus. The first is there in verse 12. We can have joy in the journey because we're not journeying alone. We can have joy in the journey because we're not journeying alone. You might have picked up in 
our studies thus far. The, the Apostle Paul had real love and affection for the Philippian church. They were, they were a bit of a pin-up church for him. And here in verse 12, he commends them for their obedience. He commends them for their obedience. Do you see that there? The word obey isn't terribly popular in our world today, is it? We've taken the word obey out of our wedding vows and we, we shy away, don't we, from giving up our rights and having to obey anyone. But as we see here, that's not to be the case for us as believers. Just like Jesus, who, as we read last week, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We, too, are to be obedient to the Father. Christ's obedience is the model for us. And so just like Christ, we're to obey God, not just when it's convenient, but when it comes at a cost. Not just when it's easy, but also when it's hard. It's obedience that we need to work at. And Paul commends the Philippians here for their obedience. But he doesn't leave it there. Notice that. Let's pick up again in the second half of verse 12. Paul commends the Philippians for their obedience. And then he says, continue. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, before we move on, let's be clear. Paul isn't calling the Philippians here to, to work for their salvation. They were already believers in the Lord Jesus. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 1. He said they were God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. They had already been made holy. They had already trusted in Christ and received his free gift of salvation. So if they were already believers, what's Paul getting at here? One of the, the key themes in Philippians that we've seen thus far has been unity in the gospel, hasn't it? Back in that very first passage in Paul's prayer, we saw him pray that the Philippians' love for each other might abound more and more. He's called them to stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one. That was in chapter 1, verse 27. He's called them to be like-minded, to look to the interests of others. That was in verse 4 last week. And he picks up that that same theme here in this verse. But it's slightly obscured because in English, we don't have a plural form for you. Let me explain what I mean. A sing we don't have a plural form for you. Let me show you what I mean. Say, for example, if I wanted Perksy to go to the back of the church, I'd say, could you please go to the back of the church? But if I wanted you all to go to the back of the church, but to the back of the church, I'd say the same thing, wouldn't I? Could you all please go to the back of the church? Do you see what I mean? In, an Engli in English, because we don't have a plural form for you, 
other than yous or your all. And that's important, other than the fact, honestly, it gave me a chance to use my, Bos- my bogan Aussie accent and a bad American accent. You see, because in the first century Greek in which Paul wrote, both the words work out and your are plural, not singular. Have a look down at your Bible there. Both the words work out and your are plural. They're your all or use. It's a collective action, friends, that Paul's talking about here. It's not the action of an individual believer. What he's saying here is that the entire church, all of us together, united, are to work to bring our salvation to completion. Paul's not saying that salvation is dependent on our works, as if God says, I've done my bit, now it's all up to you. No, it's that Paul's calling the church to to work together to express the reality of our salvation in our collective life as the body of Christ. To intentionally, with openness and vulnerability, progress together as disciples of Jesus. I think if we're honest, that's the longing of all of our hearts, isn't it? To be able to let down the facade. We're all pretty adept at putting that up, aren't we? To let down the facade and to connect at a real level with other people. To be real about our hurts, about our struggles, about our temptations, and to not fear condemnation or being viewed differently. For others to know us intimately and to minister to the real us. But the truth is, most of the time, that isn't what we have, is it? We have superficial relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because they're easier. They're safe. There's no danger of getting hurt or things getting messy. But you know what, my brothers and sisters? We are called to so much more than that as the body of Christ. Working out our salvation together, friends, it's so much more than looking at each other's news feeds on Facebook and liking photos. It's living life together in all of its messiness. We need to go deep. We need to know each other. We need to talk. We need to love. We need to go beyond the superficial that we're all so good at and get involved in each other's lives and work out together what it means to follow Jesus. And friends, when we get serious about this, when we understand the Lord's call here to work out our salvation together, it changes the way that we view this, doesn't it? It changes the way we view gathering together as God's people. It changes the way that we view the time before and after our services. It means that we're not drawn to 
to, to our friends or to our family, but that we deliberately connect and invest in and share with each other. It means our conversations, hopefully by God's grace, out in the sun later, aren't talking about the news events of the week or what's happening with family, but talking about how we're really going with Jesus. And not only that, it changes the way we spend our days. It makes all of the things, my friends, that we miss corporate gatherings like this, house church groups or fellowship with other believers, it makes all of them seem insignificant in comparison to gathering together with other believers. Why would you prioritise a family picnic when you can gather together with the people of God? Why would you worship creation down the park or on a boat when you can gather together with God's people and worship the Creator? My brothers and sisters, we covered this in 1 Peter. And can I tell you, I'm a little bit fearful of saying this this morning because I did a whole sermon about the beauty of the body of Christ and gathering together and then the week after we ended up in lockdown. But I'm going to risk it anyway because I am convinced that we here in Nowra and we in the West, we have got far too shallow a view of the corporate gathering of God's people. Why do I say that? Because we miss gathering together for pitiful excuses. Why would you rather be at a family picnic than being with God's people? Let me, let me say, and I, I know that this is going to be hard for some to hear, if you want your family, your unbelieving family, to come, and, to come to know the Lord Jesus, you need to show them that God is number one. And if you miss gathering together with God's people to be with them, you're showing them that they are number one, not God. Do you see what I mean? This is our priority. We are responsible for each other. We looked at that in our mid-year series, didn't we? I can't believe the Bible says, hate my family. This is the family that is to be our priority, my brothers and sisters. And we need to be intentional. We need to really work hard at doing this together. Because it's so countercultural in our world today. Think about it. If you want to know how to have a more satisfying marriage, how to put particular sins to death, how to, how to be disciplined in prayer. Think about it. What did you do 20 years ago? 20 years ago, you would seek out a faithful brother or sister in Christ, wouldn't you? Someone who's been following Jesus for a long time, and you would share your struggles with them. And they would, in turn, minister to you. You would be accountable to each other. You would share and they would support you. That was 20 years ago. But think about it. What do most of us do today? We Google the answer, don't we? We turn to Google. Is it possible, my brothers and sisters, that we have replaced the support and the discipleship of the community of God for Google? I think it might be. What we're being called to in these verses, my friends, is so much more than asking Google. We need to be embedded in deep and real and meaningful relationships with each other as we work out our salvation together. And we're to do this. See, the end of verse 12. We fear and trembling. 
This doesn't mean that we obey God with a sense of terror or dread, as if we're worried he's going to smite us with lightning from the sky. No, we're to obey God with reverence and awe and trust and love. Please see, friends, fear of the Lord doesn't drive us away from God, but to him in worship and adoration and love. Last week, Irene and I weren't here, and after my sister's wedding on Saturday, we had the privilege of preaching at Oran Park Baptist. Well, I did on Sunday morning. And they're in the midst of a series on God's attributes. Some of the, the characteristics of God that God alone has. That he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he's infinite, that he's eternal. And I had the privilege of preaching on God's sovereignty. But you know what? That's a good study for us to do. Because when we come to understand more of God, We come to see more of his glory and more of his wonder. We see that all of the other things that compete for our worship, that they are pitiful in comparison. We need to have fear and trembling. So I want to push again this morning. There's about five sermons in this passage, but I'm I'm holding to one long one. Whilst we have no need to fear the presence of God on that day when Christ returns, as we celebrated this morning, because of the shed blood of Christ, we have no need to fear that day when every knee will bow before Christ. I wonder if maybe we actually do need a little bit more fear and trembling in our discipleship. Perhaps we need to be just a little bit less casual in our relationship with Jesus. Do we, do I, take Jesus' call to full complete obedience just a little bit too lightly? Do we let other priorities, work, study, sport, our social lives, distract us from worshipping King Jesus? Do we perhaps even delay obedience, planning to get back to it later if that day ever comes? I wonder if maybe, just maybe, we need to tremble just a little bit more rather than taking Jesus lightly. That's our first, and don't worry, by far the longest, first reason we can have joy in the journey. We're not journeying alone. But we can also be confident, and here's our second key point for today. We can be confident that God is working his purposes out in and through us. We can have joy on the journey because we're confident that God is working his his purposes out in and through us. In verse 13, Paul shows, it, shows us how it is that we can obey, how it is that we can work out our salvation together. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We're able to work out our salvation together, friends, because God is working in us. We aren't left to our own devices. Praise God, he supplies all that we need, both in our own lives and in our life together. Yes, we're to do so with fear and trembling, but ultimately our obedience is empowered by God. I don't know about you, but I find that the most enormous relief. I constantly feel ill-equipped and inadequate, lacking in resources to do what God's called me to do. And I know I need this reminder here. 
Perhaps you do too. Friends, we can't do this in our own strength, but we can in God's. He supplies all the power we need, transforming us, moulding us, that he might achieve his purposes in and through us. I can't love people who are different to me by my own strength. But in God's, I can. I can't put those prevailing sins that linger in my life to death in my own strength. I've tried, but I can in God's. I won't sacrifice myself for the benefit of others in my own strength. But in God's, I can and we can. And friends, I want you to notice here, if you're like me and you feel ill-equipped and inadequate, that God works here at both the level of our will and our actions. God, Do you see what Paul says there? God transforms our will. He transforms our mind, bringing our motivation and our desires in line with his. We begin to seek his ways. But he also works on our actions enabling us to act and to obey. We don't just let go and let God. We're an active part of this. But it's God who gives us the desire and also the power to live in a way that's glorifying to him. And as a consequence, here's the third reason we can have joy in the journey. God's work in us makes a difference. God's work in us makes a difference. Paul tells us here, we're going to light up the night. Paul sandwiches here two practical instructions about what it looks like to work out our salvation as a community of believers. We've an amazing promise in the middle here. The first instruction and the promise is there in verses 14 and 15. See if you can pick them up as I read. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become pure and blameless, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. We looked at the damage of community-destroying sins in 1 Peter last term, didn't we? And we see the same here. Grumbling and complaining seriously damages the unity of a church. It destroys the church's mission and witness. Perhaps as I say this, you're sitting here thinking, grumbling and complaining? Really? Everyone grumbles and complains, don't they? Surely there was something else going on in Philippi that Paul could have written about. Surely there was some adultery or, or idolatry or, or murder going on? Grumbling and complaining, really? Is that even a sin? Goodness, the English have taken it and made it an art form, haven't they? Hi, mum, watching at home. But you know what, friends? The truth is, it's really easy for us all to take that attitude and minimise grumbling and complaining, isn't it? To excuse our sin. But my brothers and sisters... When our conversation is filled with grumbling and complaining and personal attacks, we lose our distinctiveness as the people of God. We're no different 
to the world around us. Paul calls us to express the reality of who we are here, redeemed children of God, in our lives and in our conversations. And so I want to challenge each of us today. The only way for grumbling and complaining and personal attacks to stop in any community, any church community, is for each of us to accept its sinfulness and to each commit to be an agent of change. So I want to challenge each of us this morning. The next time someone comes up to you, and it may even be after the sermon this morning, next time they come up to you and they say, look, I've got to share with you, this happened to me and I'm really, really hurt by it, I want you to stop them right away and say, look, I'm really sorry that you're hurting. Have you approached the person who did this to you? Have you shared with them how you're feeling? And if they answer no, well, you need to say, look, it wouldn't be godly, it wouldn't be right for this conversation to continue. I need to stop you right now. I love you, but I need to stop you, and you need to go talk to that person straight away. And if they try to start again, stop them. Stop. This is not godly. We need to stop this. If they need help, if they need encouragement, offer to go with them. Be a support person. The only way to stop grumbling and complaining in a church community, even when it's disguised as prayer requests, is for each of us, my friends, my brothers and sisters, to take strong action and to stop it before it starts. Can I urge you, can I encourage you to do just that? I don't know about you, but I would love to be part of a church family that took that seriously, that didn't turn situations and make them become bigger than they need to be because they're addressed in love and humility right at the start. Don't you want to be part of a church community like that? Grumbling and complaining, all it does is it destroys our witness, my brothers and sisters. Are you on board? Can we start practicing that and doing it forever, but start this morning? I'm going to take all of the blank looks as perhaps a sign of repentance rather than inattention. So praise God for that. But friends, I want you to see, if, you, if you're still teetering on the edge, see what Paul has to say from verse 15. Because he says that when we do this, we're so different to the world around us that we shine like stars in the sky. So distinct, so pure, so blameless in a warped and crooked world that we shine like the stars that brighten the sky on a dark night. How are people in Nara going to know about the Lord Jesus? My brothers and sisters, it's through us. That's why we can't retreat into holy huddles and so put our light under a bowl. No, we need to minister in this dark world for Jesus. And friends, that's why I care about your obedience. Enough to sometimes say the hard stuff. And that's why you should care that much about mine too. What a tragedy it would be if the only stars shining for Jesus in Nara were dim. Not really much different to having no light at all. Not really that much different to anyone else. What an eternal tragedy that would be.
Paul gives us a second instruction here. Verse 16. To shine like stars, we need to hold firmly to the word of life. Instead of complaining, we need to be preoccupied with proclaiming. Proclaiming the word of life, the good news of the gospel. When we complain, friends, our, our brightness dims. But when we proclaim the good news of the gospel, the light gets turned right up. Friends, that's why the word of God needs to be central in all that we do. I don't know about you, but I find that my light shines less brightly if I haven't started my day with God's word. It shapes how I deal with challenges. It shapes how gracious I am when things go wrong. That's the power of God's word. It changes us. We need to hold firmly to it and make it central in our lives. One final word of hope that Paul offers for the journey. Our sacrifice, our service is not in vain. We see that from halfway through verse 16 through to the end of the passage in verse 18. Paul shows us that our sacrifice, our service is not in vain. It was a while ago that Max read, so let's read those verses again now. I'm going to pick up from halfway through verse 16. Paul says, And then, thinking about them shining like stars in the dark sky, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too, should be glad and rejoice with me. At first, this seems like a cryptic little metaphor, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Until we understand what a drink offering was, and then it begins to all make sense. The drink offering was the smallest and the last part of a sacrifice that was made. It was often poured out over or beside the sacrifice. And what Paul's saying here is that even if his whole life, even if his whole life only makes the smallest contribution to the faith of the Philippians, he rejoices. That's radical, isn't it? Being willing to suffer pain and persecution and even death for the faith of others. Notice that Paul says twice there in verses 17 and 18 that this is a reason to rejoice. It's the greatest ambition we could have. The progress of others in the journey. I wonder, are you a drink offering? Even though you might feel that your contribution, your conversations, your prayer, your service, it might feel like it's a very small contribution. But Paul says, no, my brothers and sisters, rejoice you are in fact giving your energies to the most important, most significant thing you possibly could. So be encouraged. And if you're not doing that, I pray that you start. It's a long, what's well, often a long and arduous journey as a disciple of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus called it the narrow road for a reason. But praise God. It's not a journey without joy or encouragement. We don't journey alone. We have each other. God's gift to encourage and rebuke and refine and support us. 
It's not a journey without hope. We know that God is achieving his purposes in and through us. And it's not a journey without promise. When we obey him, we shine like stars in a dark sky. And even if we don't see the fruit this side of eternity, our labour for him is not in vain. That sounds like a reason for joy to me. Why don't we pray? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this rich, brief, but yet deeply, profoundly challenging passage of your word. Lord, Paul's exhortation, Paul's rebuke, Paul's encouragements here, they speak so directly and so powerfully to each of us. Lord, we confess that far too often we drink the the Kool-Aid of individualism in our world. We bring that to our relationship with you and the body and we don't prioritise gathering together in settings like this, in house church groups, in coffee shops for discipleship. We don't prioritise the gathered body anywhere near as much as we should. Lord, forgive us and help us to repent of these poor and idolatrous priorities. Lord, we thank you that you are at work in and through us. For the promise here that when we submit ourselves to you and to the Lordship of Christ, that you change our affections, that you change our mind, you change what we desire, but that you don't just change our motivations, but that you equally empower us to act. Lord, help us to know the strength and the power that we have living in us in the spirit of the resurrected Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the promise that when we do this, when we obey you faithfully, that you will shine your gospel, your light, your hope and your glory through us. Lord, we confess that sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Thank you for this final promise, Lord, that our labor is not in vain. Help us, Lord, to use this passage, to use this time to reorientate us to set aside those things that are entangling us and to focus our time and our energies on the proclamation of the gospel. We pray this, Lord, that you might be glorified in and through Narrow Baptist and that your kingdom might grow. And we pray all of this in the mighty name of our risen King. Amen.